Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here, and it is great to see all of you uh, join together for worship. And you've uh, arrived here while we're doing a six-week series called Future Proof. Six ways to future-proof your faith. And during these six weeks, each week we're doing a different emphasis that is congruent with that theme. Today's emphasis, biblical conflict resolution. Biblical conflict resolution. The Bible teaches us how to engage in conflict in a God-honoring way and in a practical way that leads to resolution, reconciliation, repentance, those things. And so today, we're going to take a look, a practical look, about how to work through interpersonal conflict between Christian brothers and sisters. I've got two resources I want to recommend to you, um, so I'll go ahead and uh, put these up on the screen if, if we can... It's on this web page, so that should come up in a second. I've pushed my button, so I'll, I'll, I'll trust that I don't need to push a button. But I'll tell you what it is, ctkcincy.com conflict. There's a couple resources there, and actually there's a form you can fill out if you would like to have a conflict. Um, <laughs> a member of our staff will, will get in touch with you, they will insult you, uh, whatever it takes uh, to give you some practice at resolving conflict. Um, but yeah, this, there are two resources at this link that I want to commend to you. We, um, a lot of what I want to talk about is uh, wisdom gleaned from these two documents. One of them is a document produced by our staff that is Biblical Conflict Resolution. That is a policy. Um, this is uh, something that we use in, in some, something of an official capacity. Um, and we use this as a teaching tool also for the church. So you can, this is how we... Uh, uh, we want us as a church to instruct us to engage in conflict in a healthy way. The other one is from an organization, a website called Peace Pursuit. Um, and this is very practical, step-by-step -step guide. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's so practical, it's literally like, oh, I'm in the middle of a conflict, I just realized, okay, let me go to this website. Here is a step-by-step -step guide of what to do each step of the way, thoroughly biblical, saturated with scripture, very helpful. Um, those two resources are, uh, I'm, I'm drawing from those, so I'm citing my source here um, as we go along. But I won't be quoting from them directly from, you know, beyond this moment. All right, so we're going to um, dig in, look at a foundation for conflict resolution. I've got several texts, so we're going to bounce around a bit today. We won't be anchored in a particular text. But what I want to do is work through a few different scenarios and scriptures that speak to each of those scenarios. So there's three of them. Um, so we'll dig in here. The first scenario is when you have wronged somebody else. So you have committed a wrong, uh, you've offended somebody else. And so for this, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. This is Jesus' teaching. Um, actually, this is right in the text that Alex quoted earlier from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Presumably, you've done something. Your brother or sister in Christ, somebody else, 
is offended by that, and then you, it comes to mind. You, you become aware of it while you are presenting a gift at the altar. So you've, this is more of an Old Testament uh, worship gathering where you're presenting a gift at the, at the temple. So if you're there, you remember that a brother has something against you, leave your gift and before the altar and go. First, so here's the first thing you do. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is describing a man or woman who has presented himself at the temple for worship. Suddenly remembers, oh, I've done this thing. My brother or sister in Christ or uh, somebody's upset with me because of it. He says, before you present this gift, leave the gift at the altar. Leave and go be reconciled to uh, this uh, fellow Christian and then come and present your gift. Why is that? The reason is, is very simple. The worship and the devotion that we offer to God includes our relationships with other Christians. The worship or devotion that you offer to God includes your relationships with other Christians. So reconciliation, unity, resolving conflict, these things are part of our devotion to God. It's part of our worship. 1 John chapter 5 teaches this explicitly. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. If you love God, if you say, I love God, but you hate a brother or sister in Christ, Jesus says you're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, so that's, this is, this is a person, a man or woman in Christ that you can see, that you know them, you have a relationship with them. If you can't love the person that you can see, that person cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the principle I shared a second ago, your devotion that you offer to God includes your relationships with other Christians. Or to say it another way, love for your brother or sister in Christ is how you demonstrate your love for God, at least a key way. So we can conclude this, an unresolved conflict with a brother or sister in Christ can disrupt not only your relationship with them, but also your relationship with God. So if you've sinned against somebody, if, if you recognize you're in the wrong and that you've done something that is an offense to a brother or sister in Christ, the ideal resolution is for you to be the one to initiate the reconciliation. For you to go, go to them, for you to leave your gift at the altar, as it, was, as it were, and initiate. You know, I just realized something. My microphone is in my pocket. <laughs> That's why we were having sound issues. So I want to put this on my head, and whoever's running sound, you might have to adjust. I do that sometimes because it, it hurts to have this thing like just hanging on my ear all morning. All right. My apologies, folks. Especially, I'm sorry for those who are uh, watching this on the video sometime later. Okay, this should be better. Sorry for the distraction. <laughs> okay, so if you've committed some offense against a brother or sister in Christ, the ideal resolution is for you to be the one to take the initiative towards them and to work it out. 
even though they, so they were the one that was wronged by you, it, the ideal thing is for you to go with them, for you to, or go to them and take that initiative. So if you've done this, if you've sinned against somebody, even now, if you're aware of it, if you've sinned against somebody, don't delay. Don't, don't put it off. Don't postpone it. Take the initiative right away, as, as, as soon as possible, to, to, to go to them immediately and make it right. Because unresolved conflict with a fellow Christian can impact your relationship with God. It can hinder your worship. So this is, um, I'll, I'll mention this as a suggestion. I know some have done this. This is not a biblical command, but it's uh, something that could be a way to apply in our day, Jesus' command. And that is, uh, some people have made a practice when they are in this situation to forego taking communion until they have uh, reconciled with a brother or sister. That's that's just a suggestion as one way to apply it, but um, it's not a requirement of the Bible. But it's a way to, to honor this scripture. That's the first scenario. You have done the wrong thing. Now, here's a second scenario, second point. This scenario is when somebody else has wronged you. Somebody else has wronged you. And the scripture for this one is in Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18 What's different about this scenario is that this time um, the other person is in the wrong and you're, you were the one that was offended by what they did, okay? Now, these verses are very important because it lay, they lay out some very practical principles for conflict resolution. So this point is going to be the longest one. It's important for personal conflict resolution, but also as it escalates into a formal church discipline. The same text covers all of those bases. And Jesus lays out this step-by-step process where it escalates uh, through different steps. And so the principle here is if somebody wrongs you, and you know, if they haven't pursued you or, or, or reconciled with you yet, then in this case, still, you can take the initiative to make peace with them by talking to them directly. So in the first point, you can take the initiative towards that person if you have wronged them. At this point, they've sinned against you. You can still take the initiative to move towards them and help them to see how they have wronged you. In either case, we have an initiative that we can take to make peace. There's, uh, there's multi-steps here, so we'll, start, we'll uh, go through this text. Matthew 15, or excuse me, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So we have go and tell him his fault. That is you taking the initiative towards that other person between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Well, we'll pause there and we'll get to that point in a second. So verse 15, step one, somebody has offended you, wounded you in some way as a Christian, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, this is not comfortable. It's not pleasant. uh, But it's a necessary thing. And there's two things in particular that Jesus highlights. There's you go to that person directly and you go to that person privately. Okay? Directly, go and tell him his fault. So you go and you tell. And privately is between you and him alone. So Jesus is not being... Uh, ambiguous here. You and him alone. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be confrontational, right? I mean, you don't have to raise your voice and yell and scream and foam at the mouth and throw a fit. You don't have to do that. You can, you just be direct. You go to that person directly, you do it in private, and you tell him, hey, this is what's up. This is what I've experienced. Presumably, this is a Christian friend, a brother and sister in Christ, and you, you're wanting to help them. You're wanting to sharpen them in their faith in some way. You're wanting to help them see something maybe that they don't see about themselves. Um, so you're, you're offering to them a gift. You're offering to them something that is, is helpful for them, and that gift that you're offering them is an opportunity for them to repent and for them to walk in the forgiveness of the gospel. I mentioned those two resources earlier. Um, this is where you would utilize those resources to, to, to read and to pray about them, to reflect on them. Both of them offer really good counsel about how to lovingly approach another person that uh, you believe has wronged you. I want to give you um, something I've gleaned from those resources. It's just 10 quick nuggets of biblical wisdom that you'll find in those two resources. These 10 quick nuggets. Um, I went into, there we go. Here's uh, 10 nuggets of biblical wisdom for approaching another Christian. First one, be humble. Jesus said, if you're going to talk to somebody, get the pine tree out of your own eye before you go and take a speck of sawdust out of somebody else's eye. So be humble, recognize that you're both sinners, you're both in need of God's grace, so humble yourself and make sure that you've confessed your own sin first. The second one is to be gracious. Nobody likes getting called out, nobody likes having somebody approach them and you, you know that they're going to, to tell you something unpleasant. So remind them of the love of God, of the grace of God, of your love for them, um, that, that just have a gracious posture towards them. Um, number three, be impartial. So partiality is showing favoritism. Um, impar impartial means I'm, you're not coming um, with an agenda to harm them, but you are, you are coming to, to reveal to them something that the, God, the, the Word of God says and help them to see something that they may have missed. So treat them fairly. Don't treat them worse than anybody else that might have done the same thing. Um, the next one, do not prejudge. Meaning, I don't go assuming that you already know all the facts. You've already uh, cast uh, judgment on them. You've already rendered a verdict. You know they're guilty. Um, so you don't prejudge. You go and you, you say, here's either what you've seen or uh, what you suspect. But you don't, don't just conclude already, well, you, there, there may be more information that you'll, that you'll want to gather in that conversation. So you don't want to confront a person for like some personal revenge, right? Um, when you talk to them, offer forgiveness. In the text we read earlier, Jesus said that a successful outcome is that you have gained your brother, right? So you're wanting to, to reconcile. So you want to, you want to tell them, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm addressing this situation with you because I want to have a reconciled relationship. And that is only possible if they know that there is an offer of forgiveness, that, that you're showing them a willingness to forgive. Um, do not gossip or slander. Whenever Jesus says, go and tell them privately between you and him alone, that means that you haven't already discussed the matter with 10 or 15 other people. 
means that, that that person is going to be the first to hear about it and that they haven't been, have their name drugged through the mud behind their back before you get around to telling them. Be timely. Jesus said reconciliation is important enough that you even leave a gift at the altar and go be reconciled to them. He's saying like that is, that is just as important as, a, as, as being participating in temple worship. So don't, don't delay. Don't let the sun set. You want to go, go immediately. Um, the next one is be direct. Most of the time, if you're beating around the bush, that's going to make it worse. Don't load it up with all kinds of, uh, it's like, well, I don't want to offend you, and I don't want, I don't want to upset you, and you, you, might, you might be upset. That's okay, but if you don't get upset, you know, I'd rather that. I mean, don't beat around the bush. Just say it. Just, just say, here's what I'd like to talk to you about. So just, you could say like, uh, hey man, I wanted to ask you about the thing you said the other night. Um, it seemed like it was pretty cutting, and I was hurt by that. I wanted to ask you, what was up with that? Just say it. Um, and that's, that's going to go better if you're just direct. Um, be prepared. So take some time to pray through what you want to say. And it's not a bad idea to write down some notes. Um, jot down a few things like I, I, I want to say some specific things and I don't want to fumble around so be prepared write down some notes if you have to um, and the last one is don't add unnecessary weight don't make it too heavy don't make it heavier than it needs to be you don't need to make this thing weigh a thousand pounds um, give it its proportion and so if it's a minor thing, then um, don't treat it as though they've committed mass murder or something. And if you do that, you're more likely to get a positive response because people do mirror one another emotionally. Um, so if you, if you add a lot of weight to it, then they're going to receive it mirroring your demeanor. They're going to internalize the way that you're communicating, and it's going to feel a lot heavier to them. And that, that could make a person more defensive. Now, all of these points um, are demonstrated by Scripture. You can check the resources that I've referred to you. Um, but I think these are some practical ways that you can approach a situation and uh, hopefully have a better response. I've got another practical situation. This, this one's not in the Bible, um, but it's just from my own experience. And um, I can uh, make a quick case for it as a practical thing that may help. And that is to, to, make, to pick up the phone and call the person. Pick up the phone and call them. Sometimes a phone call is just as good, if not better, than a face-to-face -face conversation. Um, I'm not saying always. Sometimes face-to-face -face is the only way to go. But a lot of times, picking up a phone is the right, it's the right venue because setting up a meeting and texting back and forth and going to lunch and having all the pleasantries and then finally getting ready. Okay, well, here's the thing I wanted to talk to you about. I think your breath is kind of stinky or whatever. It's like, you don't need all of that runaround to just say something that's more simple. Um, so it, a lot of times a phone call is, is easier. And, and even just the, the back and forth exchange of texting or emailing to try to set up a time, that every time that just adds more weight, adds more weight, and you end up dreading something that need not be so difficult. And I think if we utilize the tool of a telephone, uh, which you may not know this, that the thing called an iPhone that you carry around your pocket, um, you, it's like if you go to one of your contacts and press, a, the, there's like seven numbers, um, it'll call another per, other person can hear what you say and you can hear what they say through your phones. 
It's cool. You should check it out sometime. I know most of you just think it texts, but you can actually call people on it. Use your phone to call them up, and it's immediate. It, 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 you don't have to have the back and forth set up. Um, and I would, this is just a preference of mine, a personal preference that I have as a cultural thing that I'd love to see happen more and more in our church is just that we're free, we feel more freedom to just pick up the phone and call each other. Um, because if we do that, then if there are things that come up that need to be addressed, we don't have 15 speed bumps and hurdles to overcome to get to that hard conversation. We can just pick up the phone and talk to them directly. Call them up, hey man, um, that joke the other night, I, I thought you were way over the line there. Uh, I just want to tell you what I thought and hear what your response is. You could have that conversation in five minutes. They could say, you know what, I've been, I've been kind of convicted about that, you're right. Um, I'm sorry, hey man, it's cool, I just want to let you know. Praise God, well, let's pray and I gotta get back to work. It could, be, it could be simple. And I think those little quick interactions can help us be more direct and, and, to, and that deepens our intimacy um, as we are able to have healthy conflict in ways that don't, that don't weigh so much. Okay, so let's say you've done all of that. You followed through with all this and it didn't go well. They didn't respond the way that you had hoped. Then what do you do? Well, at this point, you've got two options. You can drop it because it really isn't that big of a deal. And that's, that's a valid option. Um, you would have to discern, you know, your knowledge of scripture led by the spirit. Maybe in this situation, it's just best to drop it. You know, I've said what I think and they disagreed. That may be fine. Or the other option is you can escalate it. And you escalate it because you know what? what? It actually is a big deal. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not some small or trivial matter. This is a matter of some significance. So, um, so you know, we want to escalate it. So let me give you an example. Suppose you've got a couple of Christian friends. They have an ordinary conflict. And so one Christian calls up the other Christian and says, hey man, uh, I thought your joke was too far. Your sense of humor can really push the line sometimes. And the other guy could be like, no, nah, I think you're being too sensitive. I don't think I, don't think I was. <laughs> it's probably not a significant sin issue where you need to, like, well, okay, I guess here we go with church discipline, bro. Um, <laughs> you don't have to go that route. It could, that could just be something, maybe you plant a seed that the Holy Spirit will use later down the line to bring about some change or repentance. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't necessitate an escalation. Well, here's another example. Suppose you notice a man who is, who's, you know that his marriage is on the rocks. Um, things have been struggling. His wife and him have been fighting a lot. So there's trouble. And you also happen to notice that there is another woman that he's been getting more and more friendly with. And there's something you would say, you know, it seems almost flirty. Maybe it is flirty. That is a significant enough issue to where you, wanna, you don't want to just be like, well, okay, I guess it's nothing. It's like, if you, if you discern something, then you might press in on that. Um, and wisdom will have to, you have to dictate, wisdom will have to dictate what you do in the moment. But that's, a, that's an issue of such consequence that you might be saving somebody from driving their marriage off a cliff and, and train wrecking their life and their family. So that's the sort of situation where you might, if you see something that is like, you know, there's smoke, I bet you there's fire, then you might escalate it. And so in that situation, you feel, okay, this one conversation didn't go well. I want to pursue it further. Then 
you do step two. So let me go back to uh, the scripture we were at before. Are we on there still? Okay. But if he, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he does not listen, so it didn't go well, so then you're going to take one or two others along with you, and then here's a, an important phrase, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I put quotes there because that's a quotation from the Old Testament. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. We'll get there in a second, but that's where it's headed. So here's the reason why you would take two or three witnesses along. And Jesus says here, you take two or three witnesses that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I want to read to you the Old Testament text in a moment that Jesus is quoting. But what he's talking about is a charge. So this isn't, I thought your joke was out of line. No, it wasn't. Okay, well, Frank and Roger here, we all think your joke was out of line. Now we've got three witnesses. I still think it was fine. No, he's, he's saying that there is a charge. In the Old Testament context that Jesus is quoting, there, this, is, this is moving into, this is a criminal procedure. So a charge is something that necessitates this kind of a response. Now again, wisdom in Christian community will have to dictate how serious is the matter. But the quote that Jesus is pulling from the Old Testament is about a charge of a crime. Somebody has done something that is a serious, uh, a serious deal. So what, where he's headed here is, is, is he's referencing this Old Testament requirement that criminal charges cannot be brought against somebody else without eyewitness testimony. Two or three eyewitnesses. That's the minimum burden of proof, and it protects innocent people from being falsely accused by malicious witnesses. So let me read to you the text. This is from uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 19. I know it's kind of buried deep in the, in the back, uh, you know, the front of your Bible and places that you, you, may, you may not read. But this is, this, the book of Deuteronomy is a really important text. Jesus quotes it a ton. Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not suffice against any person for a crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties, now both parties meaning the malicious witness and the accused, both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, so there's the fear of God who's the ultimate judge, before the priests who were mediators between, uh, between God and his people and they acted as mediators, and the judges who are in office in those days. So there's, there's an assembly of a court. It's like a court procedure. The judges shall inquire diligently. Here's a trial, or, or excuse me, here's an investigation. And there's these judges that are charged with being impartial. They're going to inquire and find out what really happened. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Here's the point. You might confront somebody about their sin, and you might be wrong about it. 
We have to account for that, right? I mean, just because you think somebody else has done something wrong, that doesn't settle the issue because you might have a personal vendetta. You might have an agenda. There might be some history between you. So you need to have other people who will bear witness and testify there has indeed been some serious wrong committed here. That's why you need two or three witnesses who will put their name on the line and say, yes, I will testify in a court of law before God Almighty that this person has done this thing. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 19, which ensures that they're dealing with actual sin that can be named. You, you, you can't just say like, well, I think he's got a bad attitude. Well, bad attitude might be a sin, but you have to be able to name the sin. You have to say, this was the actual thing this person did. And so this is how God protects innocent people and preserves justice. This is a justice text about how to, how to make sure that God's people are able to be, can live with one another peaceably and with justice as their guide. So it's got to be a true sin, an actual sin, not a vendetta. And if the other person is truly in sin, then other witnesses will cor- corroborate that sin and bear witness to the problem. And if you have two or three witnesses that are in agreement, then the burden of proof has been established. That man or woman is in sin. And as far as scripture is concerned, you can render a guilty verdict. That person is guilty in sin and they are being called to repentance. That's the desired outcome. The desired outcome outcome is repentance and reconciliation. Um, And in the New Testament application of this, growth in Christ, repentance, that sort of thing. And if the person does not repent, even at the urging of two or three witnesses, saying, this is a serious sin. Then there's one final escalation, which is bring it to the church where that person is removed from fellowship. So let me just pause here and make sure we're putting it all together. When Jesus says in Matthew 18, let me go back here, Matthew 18. One person goes to another person, I think you're in sin. And the other person says, no, bro, I'm good. All right. Um, well, me and these two other brothers, we love you. We've seen this in your life. We think it's a problem and we're going to name the sin. Here's what happened. Here's what we, here's what we see that you've done. And we're bearing witness before God that this is a real problem. And you're doing it. It's, it's gotta be an actual sin and it's gotta be something of the sort of magnitude that would require this sort of escalation. So it's not just some, some personal spat. It's got to be a real sin that has real consequence. And it's got to be established by two or three witnesses. But he may not respond. Let's say you've gone that far and there's still no repentance. There are steps three and four, and I'm going to combine them here. Steps three and four. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So do you see the the escalation as it's going up here? The final um, escalation is um, you remove them from fellowship. Prior to that is the, the church body is able to collectively weigh in and, and add their voice to this call to repentance. I mean, you can have two or three malicious witnesses, 
but there's a protection there too. It's like you don't cast a person out of the fellowship of the church until the church is able to add its voice and say, yes, we as a church will bear witness to this and that person is removed from fellowship. So the bottom line is what Matthew 18 gives us, Jesus gives us in this text, it, it shows us a template for how to correct sin interpersonally. Go to that person directly, privately. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. This is, a, this is what I see. This is a concern. I want, I want to address it with you, and I love you. I want to give you an opportunity to repent. I think for most Christians that are humble and growing in Christ, that's as far as you need to go because they're... They love the Lord, and they don't want to dishonor their Lord, and they're going to respond to that. Sure, it'll hurt. It always hurts. Nobody likes getting called out, but you're sharpening them, and that person is being brought back to the grace of Jesus. I mean, because the gospel is the fuel here. This is not like, hey, you fell short of the mark. It is, hey, you're not living in line with the truth that we believe. I want to call you to that. And so it's a loving, gracious thing to do, to... to, you're preaching the gospel to this person in calling them to repentance. That's a good thing to do. And if they don't respond, then you see that there is a way for this to shift from interpersonal conflict resolution into a more formal process, if it's serious enough, whereby the church can get involved. And if it's extreme enough, the church may have to remove this person from fellowship. And you, but, but you don't just do it indiscriminately. There's a just and orderly way to go about it because you want to be able to protect all parties and make sure that the process is impartial. Now, there are examples of some cases where a sin is so egregious where you go straight to removal. And that, that an example of that is 1 Corinthians 5. Now, won't, we won't read it or get into that now, but just the, the basic gist there is that you have a man who was in a sexual relationship with his stepmother and the church was giving approval to it. It's like, look how open and tolerant we are. We're tolerant of this relationship. And Paul's like, no, guys, <laughs> you've misunderstood grace. You, this dude is wicked. You got to cast him out. And so he says, purge the man from, from among you. And in 1 Corinthians 5, he quotes Deuteronomy 19. You must purge the evil from your midst. That's what church discipline is about. It's, 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 uh, it, it's like driving a wedge to bring clarity. Are, are you going to repent? And if so, there's grace, forgiveness. We're in the gospel. We're working this out together. There's forgiveness and healing, repentance, reconciliation, restoration. All of those things are fruit of the gospel, but we have to identify a sin that needs to be repented of. That's on one side. But on another side, if you have a person who's stubborn, hard-hearted, unrepentant, then they're going to dig in their heels. And eventually the church has to say, we cannot tolerate you living in open sin, open rebellion in our midst because a little leaven leavens the lump. And so it, the church has to make a difficult call to remove a person. And this, the, the, these uh, principles that Jesus lays out here built on Old Testament precedent, um, the church is protected from error from unrepentant sin. It's a way to preserve the unity and the health of the church, the purity of the church, and innocent people are protected from malicious accusers who have, might have a personal vendetta. Christ the King Church has existed for about 13 years, and we've had to do this twice, where we've reached all the way to the point where a person was removed from the fellowship of our church. And 
in both instances, this process uh, was followed. And once it got to that point, it was like this person clearly, um, they, they are not interested in repentance, despite multiple. I'll just say this as a, an addendum. Um, it's not, I mean, the, there is a linear logic, but the application does not need to be quite so linear. So it's not like one conversation, one guy. Second conversation, three on one. Next conversation, church on one, you're out. That's, we're, we don't, we, human beings don't work that way. And the times that we've done this, it's been multiple conversations. Sometimes in groups, sometimes individually. There's agony, there's prayer, there's tears, there's pleading. And then at the end of that, we're like, this person just will not respond to our urgent, sincere, humble pleas for repentance. And so we've gathered at a family meeting here in this church and we've said, this person has been removed from our fellowship for this reason. But there's a just way to do it. And Jesus shows us justice, how it, how it is applied. So we start with conflict resolution at the interpersonal level and it works its way up to, um, the, uh, to the church level. There's one more scenario that I want to cover with you. And uh, this one's weird. <laughs> it's weird because there is a degree of self-interest here. And I just want to acknowledge that it's weird because I want to talk about uh, whenever you have an issue with an elder. Because there are, this same text from Deuteronomy 19 is quoted again in 1 Timothy 5 where the Apostle Paul applies it to having uh, an issue with an elder. Same principles, but now applied to a special circumstance. And it's, it's worthy of our consideration. There's a, lot, there's a couple of concerning trends in the modern church. Both of these are true at the same time. You have one trend of pastors who are abusive. You, you know, if you pay attention to headlines like this, you, you may have seen these stories where you have pastors who are spiritually abusive or manipulative. They, they try to manipulate people into doing things with the authority of God, saying God wants you to do this or that. And just, there, that is that it's unfathomably wicked for a pastor to abuse his authority in that way, but it happens. Um, there's instances of sexual abuse from pastors who, again, because they have this position of notoriety or respect, um, they use that to work their way into um, sexual relationships. You have uh, pastors who uh, have stolen money, um, financial improprieties. These things happen. And they grab headlines, they're, they're sensational in a way, and rightly so, they, they are, these are things that, that it's good for us to be aware of and for those pastors to be called to account, even severe account, um, you know, in some, some cases, like removed from their ministries and removed from the church even. That's one side of the equation. There's another trend that doesn't get um, quite the same airplay, and that is churches who abuse their pastors. And these are not as widely publicized, but they're also quite common. And I personally know, this is more anecdotal, but I know of several pastors who, who've led churches faithfully, um, but the churches would not tolerate um, positions they'll take on issues, faithful preaching of God's word, and they were run out and fired. That happens too. And that's, that is more common than you might realize. I'm connected in this world, and so I, I hear... I hear and pay attention to stories that happen on both sides, and both of these are legitimate, concerning trends that we want to pay attention to because the Scripture tells us what to do. 
we're not left without guidance. We don't have to throw our hands up in the air and be like, I don't know, what do we do? It's like the scripture tells us what to do, and that's what I want to walk you through here. Jesus loves his sheep, but he also loves his shepherds. And scripture tells us what to do. So 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, and you'll recognize, having read Deuteronomy, similar language. So we start with... um, with an honor due to an elder. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now he's talking about financial compensation. For he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So it's, he's talking about, it's, a, it's good to pay a pastor to pay him a decent wage. Um, next verse. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, we've heard this before, right? Deuteronomy 19 and also Matthew 18. There's Old Testament precedent. There's the words of Christ who is affirming Matthew 19 and applied it in the Sermon on the Mount. And now the Apostle Paul is applying the same principles in a church context. As for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them. In the presence of all, so it's a public censure, so that the rest may stand in fear. Um, Who the rest are is debated. It could be the rest of the elders, or it could be the whole church. Um, I I don't personally have a stand on it, but I think in either case, whenever you have a pastor or an authority in a church that is rebuked publicly in this way, it does it does have a sobering effect on everybody who witnesses it, right? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. So he's referring to a heavenly court. This is an assemblage of the divine, uh, the heavenly host of God himself, Jesus Christ, the elect angels, meaning this this mass of angels. And so there's the sense of this is a court proceeding where Paul is urging, pursue justice, do this in a just way. I charge you, the church, keep these rules without doing two things I told you earlier not to do. Don't prejudge. Don't assume you know before you know. And do nothing from partiality. Don't do it from a personal vendetta or because you don't like somebody. But do something based on a biblical standard. So elders are a special case. And it's because of the nature of their work that puts them in the crosshairs. They're they're put in the public eye. And whenever they're communicating God's word, the nature of the work is to, 2 Timothy 3, to reprove, rebuke, exhort, to correct, to train in righteousness. And that includes getting under people's skin, saying things they don't like, confronting them in their sin. Um, And that invites uh, criticism from, from people that don't like to hear that sort of thing. So naturally, faithful preaching will invite a higher level of criticism, anger, and even personal attack. So 1 Timothy 5 indicates that there is a need to make sure that these rules are kept and honored that we see in Deuteronomy 19 and Matthew 18, to keep these rules as and to apply them particularly in the instance of church leaders because they have greater exposure to potentially malicious witnesses who would want to damage the church by striking at a shepherd. 
Now, whenever one is found to be in sin, there is a procedure for, for dealing with his sin. When one is found to be in sin, then the censure needs to be public. You rebuke him in the presence of all. So it's a, it's a, we're not talking about a garden variety, you know, just manifestation of sinful tendencies. We're talking about a serious matter, some serious sin that needs to be addressed. You have to address it publicly that is congruent with the public nature of the ministry. And let me just admit, like, I don't like talking about this because it seems like, I don't, want, I don't like preaching about myself, but the Bible talks about elders, and so I have to talk about things that the Bible talks about. Um, but I want to let John Calvin grab the mic for a second and let him take over this sermon, and I want to read to you. It's a lengthy quote, but this quote, I think, is very helpful in expressing the heart of why this commandment is here in 1 Timothy 5, okay? It's a lengthier quote. It's from John Calvin's commentary on this verse in 1 Timothy 5. There's four pages. Having given instructions about stipends, salary, for pastors, he now tells Timothy not to let them be exposed to slanderous attacks or burdened with unsubstantiated and unsupported accusations. It may seem absurd that he should state a law that applies to all men as if it applied specially or exclusively to presbyters, which are pastors. For God requires in all cases that they should be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Why then does the apostle evoke this law for the protection of pastors alone as if it were a privilege peculiar to them to have their innocence protected against false accusations? I reply that it is necessary to guard against the malice of men in this way. For none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. This comes not only from the difficulty of their duties, which are so great that sometimes they sink under them, or stagger, or halt, or take a false step, so that wicked men find many occasions of finding fault with them. But added to that, even when they do all their duties correctly, and commit not even the smallest error, they never avoid a thousand criticisms. It is indeed a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as gradually to bring their teaching into contempt. And this way, not only is wrong done to innocent people, referring to the pastors, whose reputation is undeservedly injured, but the authority of God's holy teaching is diminished. And it is this that, as I have said, Satan is chiefly concerned to achieve. The more sincerely any pastor strives to further Christ's kingdom, the more he is loaded with spite, the more fierce do the attacks upon him become. And not only so, but as soon as any charge is made against ministers of the word, it is believed as surely and firmly as if it had already been proved. This happens not only because a higher standard of integrity is required of them, but because Satan makes most people, in fact nearly everyone, over-credulous, so that without investigation, they eagerly condemn their pastors whose good name they ought to be defending. Thus, Paul has good reason for preventing such a great injustice, and he says that pastors are not to be given over to the malice of evil men till they have been convicted by legal testimony. Indeed, it is no wonder that they have so many enemies, since it is their duty to reprove the faults of all men to oppose all wicked desires, 
and to restrain by their severity all whom they see to be going astray. John Calvin. Let me make this practical. Um, right now, Eric Tuff and Sam and I are the two elders of Christ the King. We hope to appoint more elders soon. Um, but we're the elders now. And by God's grace, um, we're faithful men, but we're still men. So we're, we're flawed, we're sinful. Um, we have, um, you know, we, we, need, we, we need the same sort of correction and uh, accountability that any other church member would have. So we're not above uh, accountability, but we desire it. But there's a, there's, there's a helpful way and an unhelpful way to go about it. Let me read to you. Well, I'll, I'll skip to, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Here's, here's a helpful way I think that you can approach it. You can think of the elder as a man. You can think of an elder as an elder. And there, there's some different ways to approach it in those instances. So let's start with an elder as a man. So if you have an interpersonal conflict with an elder and you see some sin in his life that's a concern to you, that's, that may happen um, because we're, we're fallen men um, like anyone else. So if, you, if you're interpersonally connected with that elder and you have a relationship with him, then Matthew 18, uh, 1 Timothy 5 tells you to approach him. Like you have that, relational, uh, that relationship with him such that you can approach him and as a friend and brother or sister in Christ, you can, you can go to them and um, address the issue. So everything I've said before applies here. Pick up the phone, give him a call. I'm like, hey, um, that thing that, that I, I saw this thing or observed whatever and it, you know, I didn't care for it. I thought maybe there's something going on. I wanted to talk to you about it. Eric and I, we will do our best uh, to, to receive that with humility um, as we need to um, because that's, that's healthy for us. Um, in no way would we position ourselves as above accountability. So that's, you have a relationship and you see something in that man's life that concerns you and you want to address it. That's one, that's one scenario, uh, scenario, I guess. But the other one is, is an elder as an elder which is not quite the same. That's him functioning within his ministry capacity, doing and executing the duties that God has called him to. So in this instance, I'm not talking about personal sin in his life. I'm talking about his ministry, his teaching, his doctrine, his uh, style of ministry, his philosophy of ministry, any of those sorts of things. So if you see something there that you don't care for, then there's, there's some other considerations that need to be taken into account uh, before you would just go to that elder and say, hey, I don't like this. Um, first of all, you don't, you don't talk to all your friends about it and grumble and complain and stir up dissension and get them on your team frustrated also about the thing that frustrates you. Um, remember, in this situation that I'm describing to you now, you are a sheep and you're talking about a shepherd who has an authority and a responsibility before God for the protection of your soul. And at least at this church, that is not something that we take lightly. So it, we're not talking about a Matthew 18 situation because we're not talking about a personal sin. Nor is it really a 1 Timothy 5 situation in that it's not an elder who is in sin there. There's not a charge to bring. It's something that you don't like. Or it could be something that you wish were emphasized, but it isn't emphasized the way you would want. 
It's you wish things were done a different way. You have a different opinion. And if you just look around in this room, there are a couple of hundred other opinions that might differ from yours. And they all are looking to the same leaders to potentially address those differences of opinion. Now you can see how this can get complicated. If everybody is saying, hey, I've got this thing that needs to be done. Well, take a number. There's lots of people that have opinions about that. Now we, we want to hear that. Uh, we're not immune from that. We, but it's, it's not the same thing as bringing a charge of sin. All right, so two scriptures. Matthew 7. So here's the scripture to, to take into account uh, as you're considering this thing that frustrates you. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What I'm saying here is like, that's an instance where there would be some self-reflection first. And to, 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 re, to, to recognize that this is, um, running a church isn't easy. And that there's going to be opinions that maybe you don't share. There may be doctrines that you don't agree with. And that's to be expected in a church. So before you ascribe sin to that disagreement, or before you think like, well, they're, they're wrong, it's like, wait a minute. You're a sheep first, examine yourself and recognize that God has placed elders as the authority in, in the church and they are accountable to God in a unique way. Here's the second text. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. And this last phrase pay attention to. For that would be of no advantage to you. This text in Hebrews is saying, hey, it is not to your advantage. It, it actually does, it diminishes the, the fruitfulness of a church whenever pastors are having to deal with sheep that are not following their leadership. That's not saying the leadership is always right, but it is saying that if the pastor is always groaning and not ministering with joy, that it's, it's not for his sake. It's for the sake of the whole church. It's like if you, want to, if you want to benefit maximally from the ministry of a church, and if you want other people to benefit maximally from the ministry of a church, then you want shepherds who are free to focus on what, what is the most important thing. And that's going to mean sometimes doing things differently than you would prefer, sometimes holding doctrines that you don't hold to, sometimes exegeting a text differently than you might. And that's not to say we're always right. But we are accountable to God ultimately for the decisions we make, for the way we teach, the way we minister. And that is something that I know weighs on Eric and I, particularly. It's like, you know, I'm not ultimately going to answer to Frank and Sally for this thing they're upset about. I'm going to answer to God for it. And that has to take priority. So, don't hear me saying, never bring up a complaint. Do hear me saying that have some contentment and some, show some grace and show some deference if you have a complaint about church life that isn't a personal sin. Do you see the distinction? Elder as a man, if you're in his sphere, you have a relationship, you see a sin, address it directly. 
You're, we invite that. A matter of church leadership, doctrine, theology, practice, something like that. Pump the brakes a little bit because there's a lot of factors that, that have to be taken into account and most church members are not aware of all those factors. All right, so um, we'll wrap it up here. I just want to just one quick, one, one final reminder of the purpose of conflict resolution is not merely so we can get along better, although that's a fruit of it. That's what we desire. But conflict resolution, ultimately, it, it helps to, it, it restores us to a more pure worship. Because whenever we have this friction and tension, it hinders our worship to God. And engaging in conflict is a way of applying the gospel to a very particular situation. It is saying, like, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what God has given us. Jesus has died for us so that we can be reconciled to God and reconciled horizontally to one another. Brother, sister, friend, I want to apply the gospel between us right now and say there is a sin that hinders our fellowship, and I want to bring that to your attention so that Either you can repent and we can be reconciled or so that if I'm wrong, then I can be corrected. And, and either way, we're bringing the gospel to bear on a situation. That's, that, is how, that is why the church has the tools and the resources of reconciliation like no other organization. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness and eternal life. We have a divine standard given to us in his word. And we have the blood of Jesus that covers us of all of our sin so we can be forgiving with one another, 70 times 7 times 7 times 7 to infinity, we can forgive one another. And so now as we come to the table, we will celebrate communion, which is a fellowship meal of those who are redeemed together by the blood of Jesus. We're going to apply and eat this feast together of God's grace. Okay, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you don't leave us without guidance or instruction, but you teach us from your word so that we can worship you rightly and so that we can see how our how, how we need to have the right kind of relationships with one another to worship you rightly as well and so lord i pray for any conflict or tension that needs to be reconciled amongst brothers and sisters in our church i ask you lord jesus by your grace that you will bring clarity healing forgiveness repentance reconciliation renewal in those situations and now as we come to your table, Lord, we thank you that you've invited us here by your grace to feast on your body and your blood, knowing that we are forgiven in Christ. And we praise you and thank you for all of these things. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.